0: Hello, this is Ella Brady, and welcome to the UE podcast. This week, we are beginning a collaboration with the Be Change podcast, which talks with nonprofit social justice leaders and emerging leaders about leading in ways that reflect their values, such as democracy, inclusivity, and transparency. I am pleased to be joined by UEP alum Warren Goldstein-Gelb, who was also the co-host of Be Change.
1: Hi, Ella. It's great to be here. Uh, I started in the UEP program in 1992, the same year as our guest today, who is Eric Friedman. I also co-host the Be Change podcast, as you mentioned. Uh, you can find episodes at uh, www.bechange.net. The Be Change episodes includes several interviews with uh, UEP faculty and recent graduates. I really enjoyed our talk with Eric Friedman, the director of the Massachusetts Leading by Example program, which works to reduce the environmental footprint of state government across the state's many programs, including the state's colleges and universities, prison system, state parks, state highways, etc. We talk about Eric's approach to leadership and change, and how his UEP experiences informed his professional development. Eric Friedman, thank you for being with us today on the UEP podcast. Uh, as you know, I met you, I think, uh, right in 1992, so the last century, not a century ago, but the last century when UEP stood for Urban and Environmental Policy not urban and environmental policy and planning as it does today. But we were both starting at the Tufts Urban and Environmental Policy Program in 1992. So let's begin with your current job as director of the leading by example program in the state of Massachusetts and work our way backwards from there towards your UEP experience and how that prepared you for your current position. So to begin with, uh, what is the Leading by Example program, and can you give us a brief overview and tell us what you do and the purpose of the program?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks, Warren, um, for inviting me to talk with you here today. It's a, a pleasure to, to to be with you again and to to chat with you uh, again. Um, and certainly have uh, quite a lot of fond memories of those early days at at UAP, and it's it's nice that. Uh, our relationship and friendship is, has continued over the over the years uh, and also thanks for making sure everybody knows how how old i am and we are and <clears throat> putting us in, into the last uh the last century um <laughs> uh so the leading by example program um essentially is if, if you think about a uh a corporate sustainability program and you translate that to state government here in Massachusetts. That essentially is what the Leading by Example program is. Um, We work with all of state government, and that includes all 29 public institutions of higher education, all the UMass campuses, the 15 community colleges, and there are nine state universities, as well as every executive agency you can think of, our prison systems, our park systems, our highway highway department, uh, all of the health and human service agencies, so agencies and entities that uh, run the gamut from the types of services they provide, the types of buildings they operate, the types of fleets they, they manage. Um, and our job is to work with all of them to reduce the environmental footprint of state government uh, in, in support of our overall state objectives. And that includes things like reducing our emissions to net zero um, by the time we get through 2050 to all of the recycling and, and waste reduction goals we have and and, uh, rules we have here in Massachusetts to conserving water, um, to buying environmentally preferable products. Uh, All of those things are part and parcel of the work that we do uh, at the Leading by Example program.
1: Great, great. And can you give us some examples? Like what are the things that you're most proud of?
2: Yeah, the program has been around in a couple of iterations. Uh, It officially started uh, back in 2001 under a different name actually. Uh, through an executive order by then-Governor Jane Swift. The program was expanded and revamped uh, into more of its current form in 2007 with another executive order under then-Governor Deval Patrick. And actually, just recently, um, Governor Charlie Baker just signed a new executive order just a couple of weeks ago, actually uh, revamping the program again and, and restating and resetting some key goals and objectives of of our efforts um yeah well so, so i've been working on similar programs since 2001 and, and um, but again the program really sort of i think grew uh significantly in 2007 to more of its its current form um became i think a higher priority within within state government recognizing that in order to Uh, ask all the sectors in Massachusetts to do the things we want them to do, whether that's driving electric cars or installing heat pumps or or making sure we're insulating our buildings, um, reducing uh, uh, waste that we generate. Uh, If we're asking people, businesses, individuals, other institutions in Massachusetts to do those things, then we had to get our own house in order. And we had to demonstrate that we are doing those things first in state government um and demonstrate how how we can do those things so, sort of how do we move a a large bureaucracy forward kind of moving the titanic right away from the iceberg um you can think of state government as the as the titanic here uh trying to move the ocean liners uh, slowly but surely in in the right um the right direction um, and I think part of your question in there was uh, i think you started to ask like what are we most proud of or what am I most proud of in in the program it's a really interesting question um, because I think certainly many people would would want to hear something about uh, tangible results or uh, some sort of data or some some kind of numerical uh, numerical equation or numerical results that that we've We've had, and I think we could certainly point to to a lot of those, but i I think perhaps what I'm most proud of is the uh, sort of intangible culture change and culture shift that we've been uh, able to see happen within state government um, as you can imagine, state government's pretty large we're talking about tens of thousands of employees, tens of millions of square feet of buildings, thousands of vehicles. Uh, and so trying to to kind of integrate a way of thinking into a body like that is is challenging for sure, but I think that over the years we've really created a program that has led to a shift in the way many of our institutions think about sustainability, think about greenhouse gas emissions, think about climate change and i I like to think that part of that shift certainly i can't take credit for all of it, and our program can't take credit for all of it but I I would like to think that our program has had an influence and an impact in helping at least some of that change happen um, throughout our colleges, throughout um, many of the the agencies that that we work with. Um, And we see that, I think, in the level of acceptance that really is ever-present now in many of our agencies, all the way from fleet managers who are just recognizing now that electric vehicles are... Where we're going, this is the this is the vehicle of the future, and um, uh, there's just growing recognition that um, gasoline gasoline vehicles are on their way out. And so, you know, rather than uh, fight or oppose those changes, a lot of fleet managers now are coming to us directly and asking how can we how can we make this shift, how can we make this transition to electric vehicles within our fleets. Similarly, in a lot of our larger college campuses um instead of uh folks thinking uh poorly or opposing the kinds of large scale shifts we need to see in the way we heat and and cool our our buildings many of them are now um thinking very far ahead and and thinking how do we actually move away from fossil fuels how do we electrify our heating systems, so that we are taking advantage of the grid that is getting cleaner every day and really eliminate and move away from transition away from from fossil fuels um, this is something that you know 10 years ago wasn't really on anybody's radar screen either of those and now we see 10 years may seem like a long time but in in the time frame of something like this and sort of shifting you know an entire uh, system like state government and really just rethinking the way we do business. It's actually quite a, a short amount of time. And so we, we I think we have seen a tremendous shift in the, in the level of acceptance and the way people are thinking about um, the future. So
1: let's talk a little bit about, and I would like to come back to the examples, but for now, we're on a course where you just introduced a major, or there's been a Cultural shift, I think, is the way you put it. Uh, How did that happen? And what are some of the techniques or tools that you learned that you used to turn the Titanic around or at least make it shift course away from the iceberg? What are the change tools that you have found to be most useful in your position? Or can you give some examples uh, to say what's been most useful or not useful?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can certainly try. Um and thanks for that question, Warren. I think it's it's an important one and and one that programs like ours uh grapple with all the all the time. Uh in fact I'll just sort of as a segue or a side note that will that lead us back to the to the answer there. Um we have been working with the uh US Climate Alliance, which is a, a group of twenty five states around the country that have um, adopted essentially the goals of the Paris Accord. This was back when the U.S. was actually had pulled out of the Paris Accord, and so a bunch of states got together and agreed to to continue to to try and achieve those those goals independently of a federal action. Um, and one of the the new programs that the Climate Alliance has established uh, with us in in support is a leading by example. Uh, coalition or leading by example working group. And so a number of states that have leading by example efforts have been meeting over the past number of months to get to know each other and start learning from each other. And this very question that you're, that you're raising is really at the crux of what many of them are asking. How do, we, how do we affect change? How do we take a large institution like state government that is used to doing things a certain way? And how do we shift that that institution uh, in a different direction, and how do we do that quickly, and how do we do that effectively? Um, and so, I think over the the years, we've we've uh, implemented and have attempted a number of strategies. And I think, in retrospect, I would categorize them uh, as a group by saying uh, it's the approach that we take is kind of an all all of the above uh, approach there's really not any strategy that that we don't try or we don't we don't work on um utilizing. And by that I mean you know we uh we work to make sure that there is top level support and so by by getting and by figuring out ways to get executive orders implemented um under different administrations that's really important to demonstrate high level support to all of state government so that's absolutely uh, a, a key ingredient of of moving programs like this forward, but at the same time those directives from the top don't really have all that much impact unless you are finding and working with the right people at the right places in the right institutions and so we spend quite a bit of time cultivating relationships with people throughout state government and that takes many forms um, we have regular meetings with Contacts that we've developed at different agencies to listen to their concerns, to review priorities with them, to identify uh, project op- project opportunities with them. Uh, we have something called the Leading by Example Council, which meets regularly, and it's a it's a body of of particular state agencies that we meet with to again provide they provide guidance to us, but we also communicate information to them. Um, we uh, have a regular uh, email outreach system to hundreds of, of state employees throughout the Commonwealth at you know every college university that we work with and at most agencies and it is there to try and make sure that they are up to speed on all of the resources that are available to them, all of the new priorities all of the new directives all of the new guidelines that that um, are available to them to support them in the work that that they do um, We also have worked hard to provide recognition and acknowledgement to individuals and also agencies and and college campuses and even though it's a it's a relatively simple thing to do it actually goes a long way toward providing the support for the people that sometimes are you know working in silos in their own institutions it, it allows them to to recognize that there are people watching and it also provides them the kind of support they need internally to build uh broader support within within their inst- institutions um I, I think some other strategies that we've used uh is to sort of move incrementally uh we are often uh, trying to work with individual agencies um in different ways and uh to sort of meet them where they are and what that often means is that some agencies and college campuses are further ahead than others. And so for those that are farther ahead, we are working with them on developing long-range decarbonization plans, for example, something that's very cutting edge and very far-reaching. On the other hand, there's other agencies where you know, thinking about energy efficiency and, and uh, installing solar panels is, is more where, where they're at. Um, and so th- it, it makes a lot of sense to not push everyone at the same time uh, in the same direction because not everybody is ready to take the, the same kind kinds of steps.
1: So my guess is that there are some things that work better than others. And again, if you were giving advice to someone who was just starting out, what can I push you to say, to name, uh, you know, three to five particularly effective strategies that you have found work?
2: So i I think that... When I said, you know, it's an all of the above strategy, I think I I didn't mean it's sort of a hit or miss right strategy where you're just kind of trying things and seeing what works. What I think I meant to say was that there are so many different types of organizations out there that are at so many different levels that it's really important to have a toolbox of strategies that you can utilize depending on the situation. That that you're sitting in, um, and so I, I, I certainly didn't want to apply that it's kind of willy nilly, and we just kind of go out and you know don't think carefully about what strategy we're going to use where we do. But I, but I think it is important to say that n- there is no magic bullet, right? There's no magic solution to to these problems, um, and that it does require a kind of all of the above approach to To try and accomplish what 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 we need to accomplish, um, but if I, I I guess if I had to sort of try and focus in on a few things, um, I think that building relationships, um, having uh, effective communication with with people, is really critical because uh, the work doesn't get done without the people. It just it just doesn't happen. You can't you can't establish a policy and then implement the policy without having people do the implementation so having those relationships really matters and that's not a it sounds maybe easy um although you know anybody who's been in a long term marriage or has kids or you know tries to navigate the intricacies of of relationships i think knows perhaps it's it's not particularly easy at at all um and in fact navigating the the relationships with you know, hundreds of people across state government can sometimes be complicated and can sometimes be challenging. Um, Sometimes there aren't the right people at the institution you want to work with. And so you have to figure out how to either find those people or even cultivate um, some people. We've had some examples where, you know, we haven't really had success working with agencies, but we find there's a person who's kind of interested and so we have to sort of cultivate that relationship with someone who's ex- who's uh, expressing even some remote interest and try and bring them into our uh, our universe, you know, slowly and try and make sure that we're not going to scare them away and not going to push them so hard that they want nothing to, to do with us. Um, sometimes we've got it contacts and agencies who really want to do the right thing, but they feel like they are constrained by people in charge or by the rules that they're they're operating under, or by some other priorities that um, are just you know taking precedence over the work that they want to do. And so, in that case, you know, our relationship isn't so much um, uh, in terms of cultivating a relationship with that person, but it's actually how do we. How do we build relationships with other people at that institution to then support this, this person that we are trying to work with and that is actually committed and wants to do wants to do the work? And so that requires a different set of, of strategies, of, of outreach efforts, of, um, you know, whether it's <laughs> acknowledgement or finding the right leverage points, um, providing grants to a, a particular project and, you know, getting a foot in the door that way, um, even having an event or a meeting at their campus or at their agency and highlighting the work they're doing to people that are at the meeting can sometimes uh, help to create a broader relationship and a more effective um, way of communication.
1: So can can I jump back to the beginning of your experience in the state and actually before that to your experience at UEP? You were hired by the state soon after graduating from UEP and you were hired at first by the purchasing department. Of For the state of Massachusetts, um, well, what were some of the things from your UEP experience that you learned that positively influenced your experience working for the state, especially as a newly graduated person uh, from Tufts um, who was working during a time when environmental changes were not necessarily as mainstream, quote unquote mainstream as they are now. But anyway, what were your experiences at UEP that helped inform your first role in state government at purchasing?
2: Um, yeah, it's a great, great question. Uh, and I, I think I'll just before I get to the answer, I want to add on that uh, add on to sort of your description of of that scenario. Um, was that the the purchasing office was even I think less susceptible or less willing to to think about environmental issues than perhaps you know going to work in another institution might might have been um and that you know remains the the case to be uh, re- remains the case today as as well just because purchasing is not you know a hotbed of environmentalism right purchasing offices are designed to um develop vehicles, uh, at least in Massachusetts and certainly in, in many other large institutions, that the people working in purchasing are are there to support the needs of uh, other agencies or other departments that need to purchase things in a streamlined and cost-effective way. And so their goal is to help those agencies find products that are readily available for them, that are, uh, that I don't want to say save them money, but they're cost-effective, um, and that serve the purpose that they are intended to, to serve. Um, and so, trying to bring in kind of an entirely new set of criteria around sustainability, around environmental protection, was something that is not particularly common to um, to institutions uh, like a purchasing office. Um, and so, I I think that my experience at UEP, and and let me just say that my experience at UEP is is uh, multifaceted. It's not obviously just the classes that I took, but it was also. The field projects, or it was, you know, uh, some of the work we did out internships I had, or some of the work we did outside of classes talking to, um, I think one of our assignments in one of our classes was to talk to a graduate and to interview them and to to ask questions about, you know, their job and to try and learn from that. And so all of those experiences, I think, kind of worked together um, to provide that that UEP experience. And I think if I had to Boil it down. Although there's, I could probably talk about a lot of things, but I think if I had to boil it down, I think the one of the most valuable elements of the UEP experience that really helped me in that first job and continues to help me to this day is this notion of um, understanding uh, the wide array and wide variation of perspectives that people bring to any situation and any any problem. So everyone can look at you know, the same situation and come at it completely differently. You could have 10 people in a the room, they could be looking at you know, climate change and they could all think differently about climate change. So the answer to how do you get people to, to work on climate change isn't to tell them tell them what they need to do or isn't to give them one solution, but it's to understand how they are perceiving climate change and to try and address their perceptions as a way of moving them again to sort of adopt and accept that we need to do something on climate change. So for some people, it's what's the world I'm going to leave to my kids. For somebody else, it's how much is this going to cost me and how much am I going to save? For somebody else, it's the, you know, lack of biodiversity and it's the, the impact on on wildlife and on, on species. Um, for other people, it's a it's a public health issue or it's an environmental justice issue. And so people can, can come at the same problem and and have, there can be just an innumerable number of perspectives and, and ideas on why something is important. And so I think the UEP experience really helped me to understand that those perspectives are all valid and that they all need to be acknowledged and recognized and that that's the way you you develop these relationships and that's the way you help people to hopefully see what you want them to see in terms of the need to, to solve problems.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the strengths of UEP and still is. But I also wonder if there's a method or way, you know, um, for lack of a better word, to distill or come to an agreement about what path forward you're going to take if some of the people on your, are on your path are on the path for different reasons.
2: Um, I, yeah, I think it's, I I think I understand what, what you're saying. Um, but I think I maybe I don't necessarily, I'm not sure the premise is, is right. Um, so I'm pushing back Warren again. (laughs) Um, because I, I think that it's not, um, the fact that people see just using that example again of, of climate change and all the different ways in which people might attach importance right to that issue on some level it doesn't really matter why they feel what they do or what they see as as the issue if If you can understand the perspective that they're bringing uh to the problem and then you can work with them to help them understand that the solution to the problem helps to resolve you know. It helps to 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 mitigate the the issues that they're that they're seeing or that they care about then that's what really matters um the the resolution to climate change doesn't change whether you care about costs or whether you care about um diversity or whether you care about public health or environmental justice right we still we still need to implement the same policies but the way you talk about them, the way you communicate about them, the, the 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 emphasis that you put on certain elements of of the solution may change. Um and the examples that you give may change depending on who you're talking to and what perspectives they bring. Um so I don't I don't think you end up um having to convince people of different solutions. I think you just communicate to them in different ways that demonstrates your understanding of the, the issues and the perspectives that they're bringing.
1: But if when you bring people together to address the problems, problem of climate change or problems of climate change, uh, they will have, I think different priorities uh, as you've already pointed out. So there'll be a lot of desire, depending on who the people are that you're talking with to start in possibly very different places. And so if you're trying to develop an overall strategy to address challenges of climate change, you might see disagreements emerge depending on the populations that you're working with. No.
2: Well, or, or I would say the strategy you develop has to be cognizant of the various perspectives that people are bringing. Right. So if, um you're right i mean if if your strategy to if, to address climate change is to build you know wind turbines everywhere possible um that's a strategy that will uh, you know maybe uh, placate certain portions of the population that believe that um we need as much renewable energy wherever it is no matter what but for some people um who care about other things that that may not be you know the single strategy that's gonna that's gonna work for them. So developing sort of a narrow vision of what a strategy can be based on you know a single perspective, you're right is not gonna is not gonna serve the purpose. Um, so it really it really points to I think developing a strategy that is complex um, and is varied and addresses all of these valid back to this this question of perspectives and valid perspectives um that strategy has to has to think about what the different needs are of different different types of people different populations i I mean i think you know it's really important uh, we all have our perspectives right based on our experience and so my perspective comes from working within these large institutions that are not monoliths right where people have lots of priorities many of which have nothing to do with the environment or have nothing to do with emissions reductions or sustainability Um, and so just by nature of my job and the work that i have been doing this approach has become necessary it is I, i could not do what i do without acknowledging that people comment things very differently and that it's really important to acknowledge that now i'm not saying that's the right way or the only way I think it's really important that there are people out there who are banging the drums and are saying no, no, no. We have to do you know ABC at any cost. Otherwise, the planet is not going to survive. Or, as my son likes to tell me, humans will not survive. The planet will be fine. Um, so, th- those you know perspectives are valid as as well, and they come from the experience of of those people, right? Who believe that we have to take action now and it doesn't matter almost what some people think because if we don't do it all all bets are off um so you know i come i come to you sort of from one little mini slice of of life with my perspective of how to affect change in the world that i live in it's not necessarily the only way
1: right and i appreciate your perspective and i don't want to make it seem like i don't (laughs) But this may be a good time to bring in the issues around environmental justice. And I noticed that you recently completed an unconscious bias program and uh, and communicating across cultures program through LinkedIn. So why did you take these courses and how does it relate to your work on sustainability? And a follow-up question would be, how do you think that environmental leaders like you integrate the lessons of unconscious bias or should be integrating the lessons of unconscious bias in their programming?
2: That's a lot of questions in one in one question. Um, I'll, 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 take them, I'll try and take them one at a time. And if I if I miss something, please uh, remind me of what I what I managed to miss. Um, so we'll start with the easy one. Um, which is why they take these courses. Um, these courses are and were offered to um, all state employees through our um, uh, HR department, um, actually through LinkedIn, but but sort of offered again through um, HR department in in our growing efforts within state government to to acknowledge um, that there is work to be done on environmental justice and equity issues, and that while I think no one would say um at least on an individual level right that we are not aware of these issues i think that that's a far cry from recognizing some of these unconscious bias and sort of institutional biases um that that exist and have existed for forever i i, I guess um so so these courses were you know, offered to us, and I think um, we all you know have jumped at the chance to to take them to start exploring um, how to look at these issues differently. Um, I, I think you know I'll I'll jump to sort of I think your last question, which is to say, I, th- I think your last question was how how have we or how should we be dealing with these issues in the positions that we're in. And I'll start by saying that I think we've not really been dealing with, with these issues at, at all. And I think it's why these courses and these discussions that we're having are, are so important. But I also will acknowledge that this is incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult. Um, one, it's because just acknowledging that you may actually have unconscious bias is a hard thing to, to admit on a, on a personal basis. I was raised in a very a very liberal, very welcoming um, family that, you know, where obviously um, we uh, valued and and treasured diversity. um, uh, But that's not to say that I wasn't raised in a culture that was familiar to me. Um, And clearly, you know, over the years, I have gravitated toward people who are similar, similar to me. Um and so, starting to recognize that that even though i'm not, i don't have kind of a conscious a conscious bias or that i'm not um thinking anything at all poorly about anybody that's not to say that I am not perpetuating kind of some of these um uh injustices that have been around for for centuries so where we go from here i i it that, that last question, which is the big one, Warren, which is like, how do people like me or people in the sustainability world kind of bring these issues to the to the forefront and make sure that we are considering them uh, in a way that can start to, again, move the Titanic this time, it's the Titanic of, you know, historical injustices and i i don't have an easy answer for that i i am not sure i think this is a work in progress and is something that we are all grappling with i think the first step is that we recognize that this is an issue and that we at least start to ask the questions so when we are developing programs when we are developing um projects when we are communicating impacts of things first and foremost we need to ask the question you know are, are we negatively Impacting or perpetuating some of these injustices and some of these equity issues, and to at least acknowledge that that's something we need to be asking right up front, and to be thinking about that. That's a huge, huge shift from the way we've always done things, right? Um, where we just kind of we did things because they were sustainable and because they were the right thing to do, but didn't ask like Are we, are we addressing some of these equity issues in in a way that we need to be? And are we, are we, um, actually? targeting or prioritizing, um, overcoming some of, some of these issues through the work that we're doing. So, you know, that's not a very satisfying answer, um, probably to, to you listeners or even myself. Um, but I think it's a place, that's the place that we're at right, right now.
1: I'd like to ask Ella Brady, who is a UEP student and writing a thesis on environmental justice. If there's anything she'd like to add or ask.
0: Um, Yeah, I had a question that was somewhat answered just now. But I almost have a clarification question on sort of the scope of your work. So you are working within state government. But I did a little research. And it says that um, Leading by Example also works to sort of empower residents and businesses. do you do any direct outreach work? And if so, are there strides to center equity in that work?
2: Yeah, so I think when, when we say um, that we empower businesses and residents, I think what we mean is sort of by example. Um, so the idea is that, you know, if we can change our fleet over to electric vehicles, or if we can build solar canopies in in parking lots, if we can build buildings that are you know, all electric, incredibly efficient, net zero buildings, then the idea is that residents and businesses and other institutions can do the same, can do the same thing. We don't directly work with businesses or individual residents, um, other than to kind of set the example, um, demonstrate new technologies, demonstrate strategies that, that work. Um, So that's, yeah, that's kind of the extent to which we're involved with uh, some of those other segments.
0: Absolutely. Um, And Warren and I were talking a bit about, obviously, COVID changes all of the work that we all do. And um, the question was, has the evidence of clear disparate impacts by race during the COVID pandemic changed the way you think about your work? Or how? How is better? (laughs) So I I think I would
2: say yes but indirectly um i think that again what we're seeing in the ways in which um some of the the disparities and injustices are being expressed um through the kind of institutional response to to covid um is again uh providing evidence that <laughs> that these institutional biases and the structures that are set up are incredibly powerful. And that despite, you know, you can argue that no one intended to do this, let's, let's just assume for the moment, right, that that some of the injustices with COVID we're seeing are not intentional. Um, maybe that's overly optimistic, but let's just use that as the premise. Then if they're not intentional and yet they still occur at the scale that they're occurring, then the the sort of the institutional infrastructure that is, again, perpetuating these injustices is, is just incredibly, incredibly powerful and incredibly strong. So I think it's just more evidence that um, in order to overcome these types of inequities, we have to be incredibly conscious about the work that we do. It's not just enough to say to acknowledge these injustices or to ask a few questions that the consciousness just has to be throughout everything that we're doing and everything that we're that we're thinking um and again that's a that's a sea change it's a huge shift in the way from how we have done business in the past and so i think it's why for many of us this is incredibly important but it's also very challenging
0: um, I just had one other question, not necessarily about um, equity, just more about um, COVID and the state of the world. In UEP, um, we talk a lot about sort of like the, the window for change, um, and I uh, have done a internships at the state level. And there's a lot of conversation around how COVID has changed our infrastructure in a way that there has sort of been like this window for to change things more rapidly. Um, And also there's pushback on that. I was wondering if that has been part of the discussions you have been having.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And it's probably something could spend, you know, hours on talking about um i think the jury is still out on the the lasting impacts of of covid on the the way we operate our society the way our businesses are going to you know going to going to work moving forward um what's what's going to happen to community, what's going to happen to cities um i i think that um <laughs> there are already um some pretty dramatic changes that that are that are happening i think the question is how long lasting are they going to be and it's really hard to know um it's clear that you know the future of work which is sort of the term of art that many of people many people are talking about um it, it is it is definitely it is definitely changing um there are <laughs> there are definitely um uh, significant changes happening, whether that's within state government or within um, businesses, within the way colleges are, are teaching classes. Uh, clearly, there are going to be changes in the way we we commute to work, how many days we spend in the office, um, and that's going to have ripple effects and ripple impacts on all sorts all sorts of things. I will say, you know, from an environmental point of view, it's been really interesting to watch Uh, the impacts on greenhouse gas emissions and on um, building energy use. We've seen, you know, obviously in this last year, we saw tremendous energy drops across many of our facilities. Um, A lot of our colleges were closed, a lot of offices were were closed or open intermittently. Um, And so to some degree, we might expect to see some of those changes continue. On the other hand, you know, COVID has also opened up a window into the need for appropriate ventilation and uh, building systems that work, you know, not just provide the right temperature, but provide the right airflow and, and um, sufficient fresh air and fil- filtered air. And that's going to have dramatic impacts on energy use as well, but on the negative side, because you're going to have to bring in more fresh air, which means you have to heat or cool that air or dry that air. Um, and so those impacts are yet to be, uh, uh, sort of factored into, you know, what's going to happen to our our energy use. Um, and also, I think, you know, from a personal level in the program that, that I work on, the Leading by Example program, the effect of COVID is so important and so unknown um, that it's making it hard to, uh, or challenging to think about how we meet our goals or what the right strategies are. So if people are working in offices last does that mean that we don't need the same number of vehicles, let's say, in our fleet because we're not traveling to meetings right, or if we're doing remote meetings all the time, do we not need to be traveling to to meet with each other? Um, what does that mean in terms of the kinds of vehicles we buy, or you know does that mean electric vehicles are more appropriate or not? And so some of those questions you know are things that we're grappling with right now and probably will be for some time. <laughs> You know, some of these
1: things like, for example, ventilation, Um, you know, in Somerville, kids couldn't originally return to public school because a lot of the buildings did not have appropriate ventilation. So there was a sort of a potential conflict between different values in terms of public health, public education, environmental sustainability. They may come to different conclusions. And also the value of community, the values of being together in a community. I don't know how one would quantify that, but that's a value. So it's fascinating because there are beyond the differences within the environmental movement itself or environmentalists themselves. There's a whole other layer when you start to have the complexity of competing values around different silos or what the different silos were in the past. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. So, Eric, was there anything important that we left out in terms of the questions?
2: Um, I, no. It's been it's been really interesting um, having the chance to think about some of these uh, some of these questions and appreciate appreciate you raising them. Um, you did mention one thing, Warren, just just in your uh, last bit of the conversation that that I thought was interesting in this notion of silos, um, and I I do think I I wanted to. Uh, harken back to the early days of, of UEP also, and, and talk about, um, one of the, one of the lessons I think that I got from, from UEP that, again, I continue to, to hopefully utilize here in, in my, my life, uh, now, which is this, this need to cross over silos, um, and this need to kind of break down the, the boundaries and the, and the borders between all of the different work that, that, that we do. Uh, I find that, you know when i'm in a room or whether it's virtual or in person with people again that um come with different perspectives and have different different roles that the conversation is just uh much more energizing much more interesting um and really leads to better to better solutions uh, because people are coming at it from different perspectives and so the solutions and the the decisions that get made are really much more robust and address a much wider range of, of topics rather than, you know, being in the room with people who just have the same goal as you and coming up with solutions that meet that, that, that address that goal or that problem, but don't really uh, uh, have a, a broader impact or, a, a you know, a broader view um, on the different ways it can imp- impact different people. Um, so I, so I really, I think that notion of, of silos, right, where public health people are talking to, you know, building designers and people who operate buildings and, you know, people who work in the buildings and who have to, you know, all all of those people need to be involved in that, that example you gave of, you know, whether you're, or not you're able to go into a school, um, all of those people need to be involved in that decision ultimately. And, it, you know, that decision can't be made by, you know, just the facility manager or just the teacher or just the school district, or it shouldn't be anyway, because all of those people are impacted and they all need to have, all um, need to weigh in, I think, on um, you know the approaches to to resolve to resolve that that dilemma.
1: Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for this really informative, uh, I think, and, and and exciting dialogue that we just had. And uh, you know, good luck, and let <laughs> us know what happens.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks, Warren. I really appreciate the conversation, and thanks to you, Ella, also for for inviting me and participating in this. I really appreciate it.